everybody. This is Karen Stefano, author of the forthcoming memoir, What a Body Remembers. And I'm delighted to have with me today uh, author Shabnam Curtis, author of My Persian Paradox, Memories of an Iranian Girl. Shabnam, how are you? Hi, great, great. Thank you very much for having me here. It's my pleasure. And everyone who's listening, uh, I want to give you a brief bio. Uh, Shabnam Curtis was born and raised in Tehran, experiencing the Iranian Revolution of 1979 firsthand. And in 2004, she immigrated to the United States, where she now works as a project performance analyst. And she lives in Sterling, Virginia, with her husband and two dogs. So uh, again, Shabnam, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I, I want to I start out by first getting a little taste of what my Persian paradox is about. So uh, let's pretend you're at a DC area cocktail party, uh, not uh, a writer's group type of party, but a party attended by non-writers. How do you describe your book to someone you've just met? Sure, sure. That's a great question. Um, you know, um, I'm just thinking that maybe even before um, before I say that um, this book exists, um, I, I would like to bring examples of, you know, like just uh, simple freedom of speech. Very little things that we can talk about it here without even being worried about um, being arrested or, um, or being punished because of it. Um, and then compare it with how uh, the, the circumstances were um, in the place that I was raised in, in in Iran, especially after the revolution, um, I've seen uh, this um, reaction a lot that people um, feel like um, they never thought to compare it. They never thought um, that other other situations could exist. Um, for example, you know, even for myself, um, for for my age, I don't remember anything about slavery. Um, so if someone doesn't talk about it, if someone doesn't compare the situation, I would not know how bad it was or it even existed. Um, so I would like to to start with an example and then I will introduce my book that I wrote this book just um, just to tell the story of how an ordinary person, how an ordinary girl, you know, um, had to go through everyday challenges um, and face so many different limitations um, and had to follow rules that they didn't make sense. Um, so it's basically just... Um, it's it's a day everyday life of a struggle for a person for a, for an ordinary person who wants freedom who desires freedom to to want to be an independent woman um that's what i really uh, dreamed since i was a little girl um 
and how I had to fight with everything to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And and hence the the title of the book, My Persian Paradox. And uh, I love the quote that you have uh, at, at the opening of the book, a quote from Carl Jung. And that quote is, the paradox is one of our most valuable spiritual possessions. Only the paradox comes anywhere near to comprehending the fullness of life. And having read the book, I think that that quote is so spot on. And for me, it's it's so relatable because uh, in my lifetime, uh, I've I have so many paradoxes, and certainly you living in America, uh, juxtaposed against your experiences growing up, uh, paradox is the most perfect word in my opinion. Uh, but at this at this point, I'd like you to read an excerpt from the book, if you would. Of course, sure. Um, I hope this is not the saddest part of the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I just didn't want to choose a very long passage. Um, sure. However, um, it is a little sad, this part of the book. Uh, it's actually from uh, chapter three, I think. Chapter two. <clears throat> it's in the middle of chapter two. In early spring 1988, as I started the third semester of 10th grade, Iraq and Iran started sending ballistic rockets to each other's capital cities. Tehran was no longer safe. Schools closed and we all stayed home. Each night, mothers prepared dinner as early as they could and asked us to eat fast. They said, eat your dinner, Saddam is coming at 8. I guess they were making sure their children wouldn't die hungry. We were scared, and dinner before Saddam's arrival was not our favorite meal. At night, my parents and I slept in the living room since it was away from all the big windows. The windows had thick cloth taped over them so the glass wouldn't shatter if broken. We went to sleep every night, not sure whether we would be alive the next day. Although this wasn't our first time experiencing bomb attacks, the fear was almost the same, and we were never got used to it. One night, we were all sleeping but aware. As soon as we heard the hiss sound of the missile, we all hugged each other. This one sounded very close. The loud hissing noise got closer and passed our house as we hugged each other tighter. Then. There was a huge shake, like a very short earthquake. It rattled our house, but the windows didn't break. My father ran to the kitchen to check for dust around our house and shouted that he didn't see anything in our alley. By then, I was crying and clinging to my mother like a crab. She was crying too. In the darkness of the night, we didn't know what to do, and no one wanted to go outside. In the early morning, my father walked out to see what house had taken the missile. It was a couple of blocks away, close to the Zashiba Street. Everyone in the house was killed. My father asked my mother to take me somewhere safe. Schools were closed, 
so we didn't have to stay in Tehran, but he had to stay to go to work. He had recently got a consulting job in a company to review their legal documents. The only safe place we could think of was in the southeastern part of the country. Marjan, my older cousin, had been admitted to a college in Kerman the last year, the year before, and had a small studio apartment there. So my mother and I flew to stay with her until the attacks were over. It was hard leaving my father, but I had no choice. A lot of people, including Negar and her family, went north. The northern part of Iran was safe, and people who had vacation houses escaped there. Tehran, the big, endless, and crowded city, was nearly empty, but still so many people were killed each time a rocket came down. Thank you. Uh, that, that passage that you read is... Uh, it's it's moving. It's it's terrifying, and it, it was interesting because when I f first read that and so many other parts of the book, I was just in this suspended sense, uh, terrified and not knowing the outcome, what's going to happen to this character, and then having to remind myself, wait, this is a memoir. Uh, you know this person. She's alive. Uh, but right. it's it so vividly demonstrates how how all of this felt. And and elsewhere in the in the book, you describe your elementary school years, and you had a politically active father, a, a Marxist. Right. And in 1979, the Shah left Iran, followed by the rise of Ayatollah Khomeini, and right. then Islamic fundamentalism took hold. And then in 1980, Iraq bombs Iran, and and the war begins. And you discuss this in the book and as the excerpt you just read demonstrates vividly the reader really gets a sense of what it was like to live through this and how it felt and my my question for you is i mean did you did you suffer from PTSD? Do you still experience anxiety today? Um, how did all of these experiences shape the person, the woman you've become today? Sure, sure, of course. Yeah, it's, well, I have to say, um, when I started writing the memoir, it was very difficult. I had um, I had a lot of down days after writing a lot of sad stories. Um, it was very uh, painful, but it was the beginning of the healing process. Uh, you know, um, yeah, like as you mentioned, my father um, was, you know, like um, kind of like an activist, but with his own ideology. There were different opposition groups and he was with um, he was with Marxist groups um, there were other groups oppositions uh, towards uh, Shah's regime and um, his policies um, but everything changed when when the Shah left Iran 
Um, and then um, Khomeini came back to Iran from France. He was in exile. Um, he never thought of um, being a fundamentalist. He never showed himself as a fundamentalist. Uh-huh. Um, but he came to Iran and started changing everything. And the changes were so drastic that it was hard to comprehend for adults and for kids. I think we all have traumas. Adult, whoever was an adult, like, you know, my parents and me as a kid and millions of other people, um, it was not easy to understand what's going on. So, yeah, I have to say definitely a lot of traumas. And it just started to heal when I started talking about it, when I started writing about it. And as you're starting to promote this book, because it launches, what's what's the official launch date? March 20th. So as you're starting to do things like this podcasts and do readings. I saw you read at uh, the Inner Loop in DC a couple of months ago. Does it feel healing or is it, are you kind of picking at the wounds and uh, stirring up trauma or, or can you even, do you even really have a sense yet? Um, ah, great question. You know, um, the very first um, draft that I wrote was very painful, mm-hmm. um, but I have this experience every time that I tried to make a revision and make edits, it was kind of like detaching myself from those memories a little bit more. Um, of course, there, are, there were so many revisions in the memoir in, in this writing process. Um, and then it didn't end there. When I sent my uh, draft for professional editing, then I started getting feedback and inquiries from my editor um, asking me to explain things differently or digging down um, to explain them more. Um, and that was even more healing. Um, however, yes, there were moments when I started reading I felt like, you know, choked. I yeah. just, I wanted to cry. So I have to practice, practice, practice at home until I get to a point that I'm not crying when I'm reading. There are still moments, there are still scenes um, that um, make me want to just sit and cry. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I can understand that having, having read the book and yet there are also real some very uplifting loving scenes in the book and it's and it's interesting because as you know you've heard me read from my forthcoming memoir which is very much is just very much about trauma and in writing it I think I I sort of went through what what you did because you start out again with the first draft and you're in tears and it messes you up and you wonder why am I doing this to myself and then as you go through the editing process 
<laughs> all you're worried about is making it work on the page. You you step away from it and and you think, okay, how do I make this scene work on the page? And it's mm -hmm. and and it's very it's very interesting the way you you step back and you're very analytical and you're a writer and then you step forward again and you realize Jesus this is this is me on this page yeah yeah exactly it helps us to detach ourselves to be observer not right. be part of that trauma anymore i think i mean the scars still stay there but it makes us more resilient it feels like you look at those scars, um, you know, the reminiscent of the trauma um, as just like being a survivor. Mm -hmm. um, it, I appreciate life a lot more. And, and there are so many cases that after I left Iran, um, I felt like, oh, my God, can I do this? And then I remembered I've done harder than that mm -hmm. so it um it definitely encourages it gives hope um and it makes that person feel like a survivor just to move forward absolutely and and your story in my persian paradox is a story that that people need to hear i mean i for one in, in reading your book, became aware of my own ignorance. And, I, you know, I, I, I follow the news. I, I uh, lived through this time, albeit in America. So I have some historical memory, but it makes me realize how I think I have context for this story. I think I understand. But reading your book, I realize I don't I don't understand at all. And this book makes me feel in a very visceral sense what you and so many others ex experienced. And and with that, I I, I want to shift gears and everyone who's listening, I'm not giving any spoilers here um because very early in the book it's revealed that uh uh later in your life you had an affair in iran with a man you call captain and captain was a married man and three weeks after he left the country in 2000 you discovered that you were pregnant. And I, I want you to share with our listeners a little from what you share at this stage of the book. Um, what were your options at that point? And share, share with everyone listening, what would be the legal status of this child? And what did you do? And, and, and how did you make it happen? Sure, sure, of course. Um, I, I just want to before I before I answer your question, um, mentioning you mentioned that you know people watched everything in TV. Um, the media and the news are very different than the real story of people. Right. 
um, and us people, I always say um, the hostage, the, the American hostage in Iran was 444 days, one of the longest hostages in the history. However, I always say, but um, those people were released, but the, you know, 80 million people in Iran are still under hostage of the, of the fundamentalist regime. Um, so people are suffering and that, that I want that to be my, my message that people are different than the, than government, you know, and they really want freedom. And, uh, like every one of us in this world. And yes, um, if you want to relate this to the second question you had um, about my experience um, of abortion, to this day, abortion is still one of the saddest words that um, I think I've experienced. Um, I loved him so much, but I knew that it happened, but I knew he wasn't mine. I knew he belonged to his family and um, we had separate lives. We needed to separate our our paths, um, but um, I always dreamed of having a son from him um, just to compensate for not having him. Uh, it might sound silly, but I just felt, you know, that would be my son, but his son. Um, but uh, that's part of the paradox. When I found out that I was pregnant, I wasn't married. Um, I had no choice but abortion because um, if that if that child was born in Iran, I was not able to get any identification um, for him for, or her. My, I think it was a him. I wanted it to be a him, <laughs> um, or um, or or therefore he couldn't go to school. He couldn't get a job later. I mean, he had no identity. So, not, so legally, this child would not exist. Exactly. I was not able to legalize him. And yet, abortion was but, also illegal. Exactly. That's the paradox, right? Abortion was illegal. Having the child was illegal. And there was no choice to go through the illegal process of abortion, of course, go through the underground market, get all the expensive drugs for it, and um, make believe paperwork in the hospital. And it was only because I knew the doctor. And I was very lucky because people don't even have the chance to go to a hospital or have a doctor with them for abortion, and they die. That's just, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I mean, is is that still the law today? I'm sure abortion is a lot, <laughs> but uh, we don't. You know, no one wants to talk about it. Um, I'm I'm just hoping that there is a little bit more um, door and gateway to it to to make the illegal part of it a little bit easier. Um, however, it's very expensive. And um, with the current situation, current economic situation of Iran, I don't think if a lot of people have a lot of money to do it. So I'm sure there are still many, many, many dangerous cases. Uh, it's, it's, uh, again, this is why this book is so 
important so that people realize how screwed up this is um, for for all of the citizens, but particularly for women. Is the law the same in terms of the uh, of the legal status of a child born out of wedlock? Like the child doesn't exist, you can't get a, you can't get a birth certificate. Uh, they can't they can't have a future. Is that still the law? As far as I know, it is. Um, the only thing that I know has changed a little to the favor of women is the woman can go to court and say um, and and basically have a case against that man um but if but there is no guarantee that she can win the case and if she does then they have to get married or it's like something called temporary marriage um it in in basically in Arabic it's called sire and that's what we use because we use in Iran we use um, Arabic law or Islamic law which is almost all in Arabic um, so sire or the temporary marriage can uh, cover up um, and then they can get a certification a birth certification for the child but if I- the man doesn't want to do it then no, it's a still the same. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And uh, uh, again, the story just really puts in context, in context the, the rights we have, uh, at least for the time being, um, as, as American women. Um, and interestingly, uh, everyone who's listening Shabnam's included a glossary at the at the back of the book, and this word, uh, uh, yeah. meaning a temporary marriage contract, was one that I had flagged to to ask about because, you know, you know, a temporary marriage contract, you just it 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 boggles it boggles the mind, right? Um, right. It's just the yeah. most disrespectful thing to a woman. Yeah. And, and you know, Karen, it's not just the legal part of it. The legal part of it makes it impossible, but the culture also doesn't accept it. Like, let's say that I could legally find a man who would accept if I would pay him or something, you know, to accept to have the temporary marriage with me. Therefore, I could get a certificate for this child. I could still not keep the child because I didn't know what to say to my family members or or friends. It, it, she wasn't married. A child out of wedlock, no-brainer. I couldn't have it. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I see those cultural, not just legal right. dynamics in in your story and it's just again i'm so glad you wrote this book i'm so glad you're sharing this story but just talking about it with you reading it it's 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 just it's un it's mind-boggling and and unbelievable and real quickly um going back to my own ignorance um 
reading your story made me want to know more about Iran, particularly from the 1970s to the present, both legally, culturally. And in chapter one, you quote from a book called The Shah, which I now plan to read. But can you recommend any other books that examine Iran's cultural and political history in this period? And I'm not talking anything too heavily academic, but what else could I read to educate myself? Sure, of course. Yeah, actually, the book that you mentioned, The Shah by uh, Dr. Abbas Milani, that's a very good book. Um, I learned a lot because I was a child back then, and I learned a lot, very non-biased. Um, he has done amazing research to write this book. But um, yes, there are other great authors. Um, you know, um, reading Lolita in Tehran by Azar Nafisi, um, it's a very popular book um, that a lot of people have loved it. Um, Wait, say the name of that author again. Azar Nafisi. Okay, Nafisi. Um, she also has her memoir. This is the reading Lolita in Tehran is a memoir, but she also has another memoir called Things I Haven't Said. That's amazing. Um, you know, there is another author called Azadeh Moaveni, and she was a journalist, she is a journalist, um, and this, um, her book, Honeymoon in Tehran, mm-hmm. brings you a little bit closer to the now age, uh, because she was there at the time that, um, the, the whole crazy thing with the presidency happened, and Ahmadinejad became the president, um, and everything got even worse um, for Iran and people in Iran and the pressure on people. Um, she, that book is amazing, Honeymoon in Tehran. Um, there are many books. Um, I want to say there is this other author, Roya Hakakian, uh, The Land of No. Her book is about how a little Jewish girl felt out of place after the revolution um, growing up in Iran. Okay. All right. I'm jotting all these down. These are, I love these titles, uh, by the way, they're, they're, they're fantastic as is, as is yours. Um, Let's fast forward a little bit further. You immigrated to the United States from Iran in, uh, you, you, arrived here in 2004, but that journey started long before that. And uh, reading reading your story, it sounds like immigrating from Iran or just out of Iran uh, to various countries, it's pure chance. And it it's a Kafka-esque kind of experience can you can you share uh, a little bit about your your experience you start out describing the process there's it starts out with a lottery right yes um, especially for the United States yeah um, you know if uh, if you are an educated person with um, having some good work experience and still young in your 30s 
there is a chance that you can actually become eligible to immigrate to Canada or Australia or New Zealand uh, or some of European countries. But to the United States, it's just pure chance. Um, it was. It's pretty impossible now, I think, with the current administration. Sure. Um, but um, uh, there was a lottery um, for um, to to win a green card, uh, or basically the permanent residency uh, visa. Um, it's not a visa. It's kind of like a type of a residency. Uh, you have to live in the United States for five years and then you can become naturalized or a U.S. citizen. Uh, yeah, it was uh, one or two percent chance uh, to win that lottery. Um, and it wasn't easy back then. It wasn't online. We had to fill out the form and send mail it actually to the State Department here in the U.S. And um, if, um, if the mail uh, process um, and if the basically post office in Iran would figure it out and they would stop in many of them. Um, so what we did, um, I sent it to my uncle um, as a personal mail to him here in uh, California in the States. And then he sent it out to the State Department for me. Um, so there wasn't just a little limited chance of the lottery, there was also um, another uh, barrier that we had to pass if the letter wasn't stopped in the post office in Iran. Unbelievable. Shifting gears again, and uh, we're getting close to the end of this podcast, but I know you, you shared with me that you had gone back and listened to uh, some of my former podcasts, particularly those that I did in 2017 after the November 2016 election. And uh, one of the questions I used was uh, if, if there was one book you could make this president read, what would it be? And and why. And you had indicated that even though I hadn't been asking that question now for a while, you, you seem to have like, you seem to be jumping up and down that you, there was a book that you wanted to share. Is that, <laughs> do you have something you would want to share with this president? Well, <laughs> I do. <laughs> but you know, because, um, I would totally, if, if he would be a reader, I think yeah. he's not. Right. That's um, yeah. <laughs> um, I would totally beg him to read um, James Baldwin's "Fire" the next time. Mm. Just very bold. Um, but because he's not a reader, I think a picture book, <laughs> the pictures of kids under poverty or in war, maybe something to suggest. At least just to look at those innocent faces. Yeah. Yeah, very, very well put. Uh, good, uh, good choices on both fronts. And yeah, of course, it's a hypothetical question since we, uh, since we know he doesn't read. But uh, the picture book, that's, that's spot on. 
we're we're running out of time and so I have to wrap it up and just I want to thank you so much Shabnam for being on this podcast and talking about your great new memoir My Persian Paradox Memories of an Iranian Girl and can you tell our listeners where they can buy your book Sure of course well first of all thanks for having me here it's a pleasure um, of course, in Amazon and um, Nook, I know it. Uh, it is in Kobo, um, and any indie store that has um, a an agreement with Ingram Spark, they can order the book too. So if people go to bookstores and ask for the book, if they have that agreement with Ingram Spark, they can order it. Okay, awesome, awesome. And then, and then as a as a backup, always. Uh... Good old Amazon. That's right. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Well, Shabnam, thank you so much for being with me, and I hope I get to see you soon. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you for having me.